Well, good morning again. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting with us this morning, thanks for joining us. Before we get started, there was one other announcement I wanted to make. Um, we have just hired a new director of children's ministry. That's Jenny Mortier. Uh, and is, is Jenny here this morning? She was on a retreat with our high school girls. She may not have made it back yet. Uh, many of you know Jenny. Be sure to encourage her. She'll be starting in that position on April 1st. Uh, and thanks to Jamie Wilmoth, who's been filling in the last few months uh, in that for us. Um, we're, we're excited. We're excited about the kids that God's blessed us with in our congregation. We want to care well for them. Uh, you're, if you're just joining us this morning, we're in a series on the second half of the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we come uh, to chapter 11. We're going to be looking at chapter 11, verse 27 through uh, verse 27 of chapter 12. You'll find that on page 848 of your pew Bibles if you're using one of those. And just to, uh, by way of reminder, uh, this is... This part of the narrative finds us in uh, the last week of Jesus' life as he has come a couple days before into Jerusalem being heralded by the crowds on the day of, Pas- on the, day of uh, uh, at the beginning of Passover. It's Passover week. And uh, he's a few days away from his death, though no one other than him really knows it's coming that fast. And he has come the day before into the temple, the very heart of Jewish religion and culture, and uh, challenge their faithfulness to God, and he has condemned the leaders of the temple uh, for steering God's people away. And our scene this morning opens up as he comes back to the temple the next day to see what greets him there. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word that we have before us. Uh, Some of us come this morning confident as we come to your word that we will really hear you speak, that it is what it says it is. Your word to us. Um, Others of us maybe not so sure. Um, Many of us coming uh, struggling to hear your voice. Struggling to even trust and believe that you might care enough to speak to us. Lord, wherever we are, would you meet us this morning? Would you come to us through your powerful word by your spirit? And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus, your Son. Amen. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they, Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? 
He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they said to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, that you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Uh, let me ask this question. Have you, have you ever been given uh, directions by someone, instructions by someone, and you either said or at least thought at some level, who do you think you are? What, you know, who, who, are you to, who are you to tell me this stuff? Who are you to tell me what to do? I was uh, overheard one of our children, our first grader the other day, speaking with a friend of hers, and they were talking about playing out on the playground. They mentioned a friend of theirs, and she said, yeah, when I, we're on the playground. She just tells us what to do. She's so bossy. <laughs> I didn't know my first grader knew the word bossy. Um, but have, have you ever had that sense of, of when, when somebody comes in, in one way or another, exerts authority or tries to, and you said, why, why in the world would I listen to you? you know, maybe that's come, as we've all are people under authority, maybe that comes to you from the hand of uh, a boss, or uh, maybe you've uh, had military service and it's from a ranking officer over you. Uh, maybe it's from a parent. But you know what it's like to be under authority, and you know what it's like at those times to question that authority and think, who in the world do you think you are to tell me what I should be doing? Well, that is the question that the leaders of Israel are asking here. That's how they are responding to Jesus. Remember, Jesus has come in, and he's cast out the moneylenders from the temple. He's overturned the tables. He has declared that the temple worship has strayed far. And now, 
the leaders who are being challenged here, the ones in authority, the ones who have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo, come to Jesus and say, just who in the world do you think you are? Or in the way they put it here, by what authority do you do these things? Where is that authority from? They uh, had something to lose by the exercise of Jesus' authority. They were uh, the ones who were honored by the people. They're the ones who received glory for uh, their control over the temple. They're the ones who called the shots. They had something to lose. They also had something to gain, though they did not recognize it here in our passage. But this question that they are asking, who are you and by what authority, uh, it's, a, it's a question that, that we have as well. Uh, whether that's a question for you that has already been settled at some point in your life or one that's very much front and center for you right now. Jesus comes and makes these incredible claims about who he is and who he would be in our lives, that he is king and he is to be listened to and obeyed and followed. And so the response of our hearts often is, well, who, who are you? Why should I listen to you? Well, that's what this passage is about. Wrestling with that question of why would we listen to him? What authority does he have? Because it's a question for us. Are we going to follow him? Are we going to listen to what he says for us? Are we going to let him lead and direct our lives? Or are we going to keep him at arm's length like the religious leaders? Are we going to turn away rather than turn towards him? So as we wrestle with that question of his authority, there are three things we see here about Jesus the King and what he and his authority brings to us. Things and exercises of authority that are in many ways counterintuitive. Not certainly what the leaders of the temple expected. In many ways not what we expect from one who brings authority into our life either. So these three things. That Jesus comes to the humble and not to the proud. That he comes in weakness rather than in strength. And that he comes bringing life rather than death. These three things about Jesus. First, he comes to the humble, not to the proud. Look with me at this first section, verses 27 through 33 of chapter 11. Again, he's being challenged by these leaders of Israel. It mentions here the, uh, the elders and uh, the scribes and the priests. Uh, it's going to go on throughout our passage to talk about separate groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, next week the scribes, all these, these parties that make up the ruling power of Israel. They come to him in turn, asking him these questions, challenging his authority. Um, they're the ones who have this vested interest in Jesus coming and overturning their own authority. So they come and say, whose authority do you come with? And Jesus responds with a question. Many of us, maybe you know the power of answering a question with a question. It is a gutsy move by Jesus. It's the one where he says, no, 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 no. I'm not letting you call the shots in this discussion. Let me ask you a question first. And they say, okay. And that's where Jesus gets into this question. He says, he asks about the baptism of John. He's referring back to John the Baptist, who in the beginning of the Gospels is the one who comes sent by God to proclaim the coming of the Messiah, to proclaim the coming of Jesus. And he uh, began this lay renewal movement out uh, on the edge of the wilderness at the Jordan River. He, like Jesus, came outside of the power structures of Israel. He was not a Pharisee. He was not a Sadducee. He was not a part of the temple leadership. He was someone who came from the margins. John the Baptist comes wearing these crazy uh, camel hair clothes and eating locusts and honey. He was kind of this crazy wild man from the wilderness who starts calling out to people to come and repent and turn back to God. And the nation of Israel comes in droves. 
He has this unbelievable ministry of renewal as people come and, be ba- and are baptized as a sign of repentance. And people in Israel were not baptized. It was not a part of their religious heritage. The only people that were baptized in Israel were people from the outside who wanted to become, uh, who wanted to follow the God of Israel. They would have to be, men would have to be circumcised and they'd be baptized coming in. But for most people in Israel, that was not a part of their experience. John comes proclaiming something new and it sweeps over Israel. And the people, as the leaders recognize here, look at John as a true prophet. After hundreds of years of silence seemingly from God, another true prophet steps onto the stage. So Jesus is asking them this question. And, and it's, it's not like he's just saying, uh, you, you know, asking some random question by which they have to validate themselves. He's asking a question that is really right at the heart of the very question they're asking him. They're asking him a question of authority. So he begins with John, the forerunner of Jesus, and says, well, let's talk about what you did with John, and then we'll move on to me. He says, was he from God or was he not? And the leaders of Israel know that though they resented John, because he, again, somebody from the outside of their power structure, somebody who came to bring challenge, someone who swept up the people and away from them, they know if they say, well, he wasn't from God, that all the people are, you know, are going are gonna to turn from them as they see them, the leaders rejecting John the Baptist. But by the same token, if, he, if they say, well, he was from God, then Jesus is going to turn around and say, well, so am I, and why didn't you listen to him, and why aren't you listening to me? So they're caught. So they take what they think is a clever way out. Let's just plead ignorance, right? They say, we don't know. Now, when they say that, what Jesus sees through in their answer is not simply that he stumped them. Man, Jesus asked a really hard question. I wish he'd tell us the answer. They, he's putting his finger on the fact that they are unwilling to commit themselves to a certain way. In other words, he's, he's highlighting for them, God has already been at work in your very midst. Let's talk about how you've responded to God's work so far. And they are unwilling to commit themselves. And so because of that, Jesus says, then I'm not going to answer your question. If your hearts are turned from me then, and turned from the work of God, then you won't be able to hear what I say. And here's another way of saying what Jesus is getting at with them. And it's this first point, that Jesus comes to the humble and not to the proud. You see, these leaders have already made up their mind about Jesus. They've already made up their mind about John the Baptist, and they don't want anything to do with them. Their hearts have become hard and hardened to the work of God around them. And consider the irony of this. The people who are in charge of temple worship, the people who are in charge of uh, the leadership of Israel and the spiritual guidance of Israel, do not recognize the very work of God when it comes right in their midst. They can't see it. They can't recognize it. In other words, the ones the people should have been able to rely on to show them God have become blind and hard-hearted. Because Jesus doesn't answer their question because he comes not to the proud, but to the humble. There's a theme that runs through Scripture about the way God looks at the proud and the way He looks at the humble. We see it summed up in James chapter 4, verse 6, where James simply says this, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. He is set against the proud. The proud because they will not see God. They will not hear God's voice speak. And unless and until God comes and brings a softness and a turning, a turning around of a hard heart, then they're incapable of hearing his voice. 
it's not like these people have nothing else to look at in the ministry of Jesus. They have watched him for several years now. They have seen him heal the sick. They've seen him uh, give sight to the blind. They've seen him open the ears of those who are deaf. They've seen him most recently raise from the dead Lazarus. They have seen the mighty works of God through Jesus. They've heard his teaching. They've heard how the crowd say, look, here's someone who teaches, but not like anybody else. He teaches with authority. Here is the real deal. They've heard all of this, and still they've hardened themselves to Jesus. They demand that he show his credentials to them, uh, and Jesus refuses because he reveals himself to the humble and not to the proud. See, God loves the humble. And if we are going to hear Christ's voice, the voice of this king speaking to us, then it is going to have to come from a humble heart as well. So let me just ask you this. Is your, is your pride getting in the way of you listening to the voice of God? Now, that might be the place in life right now where you're just considering, maybe even for the first time, the claims that Jesus makes about who he is, that he is king, and what it means to follow him. And so the text presents us with this question. Is your pride getting in the way of you hearing the voice of your king? But it comes, honestly, to all of us. Maybe those, even, uh, even uh, as we follow him, are there places in your life even now where you are hardening yourself? Where you have become proud? Where you've sealed off corners of your life that you're not letting Jesus speak into? Where you're unwilling to bend the knee and hear his word? Is our pride getting in the way of hearing the voice of our king? And do we hear his call that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble? Have you ever had that situation maybe where someone has come and confronted you about something that you've done? And, and maybe it's one of those, as those situations, if you've ever had one, usually those situations are, are a mix of sort of, of sort of good and bad. Like the, the, the stuff that, that, that you really need to hear, and some, but sometimes somebody will tell you something, maybe they get some of the details wrong, or you feel like they misheard something, but there's still maybe that real core of truth. Um, do, do, do you receive that? Are you able to listen to it? Or do you have that experience where, you know, somebody comes and, you know, you really offended me last Thursday when you said this to me. And you look at me and you say, it was Wednesday, not Thursday. <laughs> and so you don't know what you're talking about. Right? You know how you can get derailed on the minor details? Are you able to hear? You know, is, what, what, what is the condition of our hearts even there? Is we're confronted by each other, much less by our king? Or do we greet that with a hardness of heart? Or an openness and a softness that realizes we are people in need of correction? And we do offend and we do hurt and we need, a, we need the work, the ongoing work of our God to come in and make hard places soft and heal places of offense. See, God says that he opposes the proud, but he loves and opens himself to the humble. And Jesus comes to the humble and not to the proud. But the second thing we see in this passage here is uh, in how Jesus comes, this one who has authority as our king. The second way he comes, he comes in weakness, not in strength. Now, I don't mean uh, in one sense only in weakness. We certainly see Jesus here and in other places 
with the strength that he brings as the Son of God, with his, even here, his strength in debate, his strength in relating to and calling people to account. But there's, uh, there's also a, a fundamental way in which this king comes and chooses to come in a certain kind of weakness rather than in strength. And we see this in the parable of the tenants, as it's called uh, in some versions here, ver- chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Jesus tells this parable, this story, and it's the only place in Mark uh, since chapter 4 where he tells any sort of extended parable. And when he does this, he's actually hearkening back to a story from a similar parable from the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 5 that makes a similar point. But Jesus tells the story. He says, okay, there's this um, landowner. And he plants a vineyard and he digs the press where uh, the wine will be pressed one day. He builds the fence, all the stuff that's necessary. And he uh, leases his land out to tenants. Then he goes away. And when uh, harvest time comes, he, he sends one of his servants to collect part of the harvest, which would have been their rent for getting to use the land. This is his land. He's, he's planted it. He's set up everything. The tenants come in and taking care of it. And so he's calling for his portion of, uh, of what has been produced. And it says they, um, they turn the servant away. They won't listen to him. They throw him out. They verbally abuse him. And he goes on to say that the master sends this series of servants, and some of them are beaten, and some of them are killed. Um, you know, if you were the master, I don't know how many servants you would send out who were beaten and killed before you would uh, start, you know, pursuing maybe a stronger line with them. But what does he do? He keeps sending them until finally he sends them, the one that's called here, his beloved son. He says, surely they'll listen to him. So he comes, the, ten- the tenants realize who it is, and they uh, plot. And they say, look, if we, here's the heir. If we kill him, then there will be no more heir. And one day we will be able to seize this property for ourselves. This is our chance. And they kill the heir and throw him out of the vineyard. The parable ends with a, a note of judgment. It does where it says that one day that the farmer, the, or excuse me, the owner will come back and throw out the tenants, that he will entrust his land to someone else. But the bulk of this parable tells about the long-suffering nature of this uh, landowner in sending messenger after messenger to these people. And when Jesus finishes this parable, they understand that the parable was about them, that they are the tenant farmers that they are the ones who are resisting the work of the landowner. And when Jesus tells this parable, he's going back to Isaiah 5, he's going back to an Old Testament theme of God having sent his people, his prophets, again and again to his people and the leaders of his people to say, turn around, repent, come home, come to me. And time and again, the prophets were rejected and often killed. Jesus might have had in mind here, Second Chronicles 36, verse 15. Here's, here's what it says here. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at the prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people, until there was no remedy. You see, they are doing, and Jesus is saying, you're doing exactly what the... Old Testament people of God did, you're killing the prophets and you're turning away from the landowner. And you see, they recognize that Jesus is talking about them. The added layer here that maybe they might not have really recognized or maybe their eyes were starting to open is when Jesus said at the culmination, and so finally the landowner sent his own beloved son to come and bring the sword and destruction for... No, that's not what it says, is it? 
He says he sent his son, not in strength but in weakness, that he might come and plead with these people and yet was subjected to death at their hands and cast out. Now, the, as we said, the parable ends in a note in judgment. But the bulk of the parable lies in between. And in fact, the ministry of Jesus lies before this final verse. Jesus, this son who came to save the people. Jesus, this son who came in weakness and went to a cross rather than coming in vengeance and coming in strength. See, that was the ministry of Jesus, to come and call his people and call us to himself, to repent, to come to the landowner even now. Jesus, in his very first sermon, Luke chapter 4, when he begins his ministry of speaking to the people, when he is, this is sort of his inaugural sermon, when he says, here is what I am about. In the synagogue, he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and uh, comes to a place in Isaiah chapter 61. And here are the verses he reads for his first sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll. And as he rolled it up, everyone in there who knew their scriptures knew that Jesus left out a line. That the very next verse says this, And the day of vengeance of our God. Do you hear what Jesus said? He stops in mid-verse. And he says, My ministry is about calling people to repentance, about bringing sight to the blind, about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. The rest of that verse is coming, but it is not here yet because he came in weakness rather than strength to call us home the leaders realized that this parable was about them did they realize that it was also about jesus the son so this one this king who comes to bring his kingly authority into our life he comes to the humble and not the proud he comes in weakness rather than strength but finally we see here too that he comes bringing life and not death. Look with me at verses 18 through 27. This is a story about the Sadducees who come and tell Jesus this sort of, uh, to us, almost indecipherable and strange story. The Sadducees were uh, leaders of Israel who were, uh, in charge of, who were in charge of the temple, and they were uh, uh, associated with the priesthood, and as often as not, they were the ones who were complicit in Rome's power over Israel. And in return, they, by the Romans, were guaranteed their position of, head, of being heads of the temple. So they had their position guaranteed by Rome at the expense of the people. And the Sadducees, uh, unlike other groups in Israel, and they were a minority in this, unlike, for example, the Pharisees that we hear about a lot, the Sadducees did not uh, hold to the authority of all of what we would call the Old Testament. Uh, they only believed that the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, called the Pentateuch, the first five books, they thought that those were the only authoritative uh, words of God. So things that come up in other parts of the Old Testament that hint at or point towards resurrection, which is the question at hand here, they didn't believe in. They didn't buy. So they didn't believe that there was a resurrection. They believed that once you're gone, you're gone. That that's it. Uh, and so these, this is the crowd that comes to Jesus and brings this next layer of challenge. So, they, so knowing that, that they don't believe in the resurrection, they come to Jesus and say, 
you know, assuming Jesus, like most people in Israel, you know, you, you do believe in the resurrection. Well, let me ask you a question about the resurrection. Okay, there was a woman, and she married this guy. And he died before they had children. And uh, being obedient to Moses' law, as it does say in the Old Testament, if a woman is in that situation, she's to be taken in as wife by one of the brothers. Now, at the time, that would have, been, uh, would have served a couple purposes. One, it would have been a protection to the woman, who in that society would have been left very vulnerable as a widow. It was a way to care for her, but it was also a way to carry on the family line. Because... Uh, much more than we even see it. Children were seen as the ones who sort of extend your life in the world. They are the inheritance that you give to the world. They are the ones who maintain uh, your family continuity. So to die without an heir was considered an unbelievable tragedy. So the brother was to take her in as a wife so that he could father children on behalf of his brother. So that was in Old Testament law. So they say, okay, so that happens, but this, then the brother dies. And then, so is the third one, fourth one. It goes through seven brothers. And then they turn to Jesus and say, okay, so what happens in the resurrection? Whose wife is she going to be? And we look at that and sort of, it sounds r ridiculous to us. I mean, you can imagine uh, the, um, for a moment the life of this woman when she comes for the first time down the aisle as this uh, radiant bride. And there on the groom's side is the groom's family with all his brothers. And then fast forward a few years, and they're back at another wedding with exactly the same crowd, except now one of the other brothers is standing up there next to her. Seven times she goes through this. You know, they could have done the weddings in their sleep now, right? They know how this goes. And we sort of laugh at that because it sounds ridiculous. Well, it, was, it sounded ridiculous to the Sadducees. That's why they're telling the story. And not just to make it sort of humorous, but it's with that kind of biting, sarcastic humor. Jesus, you believe in the resurrection. Here's this ridiculous situation. How would you navigate your way through that? See, there's no answer to that. See, how can you even look at the Bible and say there's such thing as resurrection? Jesus does, of course, have an answer for them. He says, look, you don't know either scripture. You don't know your own Bible. And you don't know the power of God that is at work. The power of God that's at work even in the ministry of Jesus. You see, they're misusing God's word. And they're vastly underestimating and misunderstanding what God is doing, even in their very midst. He says to them, look, he, he, he defends the fact that there is a resurrection, that there is life after this. And he goes to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, when he says, don't you know what Moses says? Now remember, for the Sadducees, they only regard as authoritative the first five books. And so that's where Jesus goes. He goes to Exodus. He says, remember when Moses comes across the burning bush? And when he goes and looks at it, and he hears this voice that says, Moses, this, you're standing on holy ground. Take off your sandals. And so he does, and the voice speaks, and Moses asks who it is. And he says, uh, you know, I, I, I am the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, Jesus quotes that verse, and he's essentially saying this to them. Notice that, Jesus, that God's voice didn't say to them, look... Uh, Abraham, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They died a long time ago, but when they were alive, they walked with me, they knew me, and just as I was their God, now I'm going to be your God. Jesus says, no, that's not what he says. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Jesus is, Jesus is saying, this points to the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are alive. They are with God even now. And one day they are going to have resurrected bodies again when they are made completely whole. He says, they are, you have misunderstood. You are, how does he say it at the, at, at the very then? You are quite wrong. 
You have missed the boat. He says, I am not the God of the dead. I am the God of the living. See, whereas the Sadducees thought this life was all we had and then death, Jesus says, no, I come to bring a life for you that cannot break, that will never end. And think about thinking like the Sadducees. Think about how that plays out. I mean, it's interesting, in Israel, in a context, in a culture of religious belief where the Bible was held high and culturally held high, then the Sadducees could hold these two beliefs together at the same time, that there is no life after this, and it matters that we faithfully follow our God now while we are alive. But you can imagine maybe a society in which uh, that kind of biblical underpinning is gone, where those sort of assumptions are no longer there. And what are you left with when you stop and think, there is nothing after this. You know, we're, we're a vapor, we're here for a while, and then we are gone. Nothing to answer for, nothing to hope for. You know, that means that whatever, whatever joy, whatever happiness whatever fulfillment that we are going to find in life, we have got to suck out of life now. This is our only chance. And there is nothing promising us anything afterwards. If we are going to enjoy life, if we are going to know what we were made for, then we must find it now. So nothing's going to stand in the way of that. Nothing's going to inconvenience me. Nothing's going to trouble me. Nothing is going to stand in the way of me finding and following my each and every heart's desire. That's, that's one way it might spin out. But you see, Jesus comes into that and says, no, there is life afterwards. He says, there is resurrection. Because that, he says to them, because God is the God who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who is our God now, who will be our God after we take our last breath here. And as we open our eyes for the first time in his presence, because that is true, then we can trust that God is going to fulfill his promises, either now and in this lifetime or later. We can trust that he is going to be true to his word. We can trust that even in the course of a long life that is often filled with disappointment. We can trust that. Take for a moment. Imagine that you live to be a hundred for how many of those years, maybe, you see the good, but so much of the suffering and the wrong and the bad as well? Where are you going to end up at age 100 when you look back over the balance of your life and see good, but so much suffering? Has God come through for you? Has he answered all his promises? Has he done all for you that you hoped he would and even that he promises that he would? Jesus says, why should we stop at 100? He says, don't you realize that in the scope of what God has made you for, that is the blink of an eye is the blink of an eye. That you really will open that eye in his presence again one day. And that we, we really were made to never die. But sin has come and corrupted and broken us. But God has found a way that he might bring us life, restoration, and raise us up. And so it has the potential to make us people of great hope. Because we know that God is not through and we do not have to demand that everything happens and is fulfilled now here in this broken world that he is in the process even now of putting back together. But it is oh so incomplete. Jesus says to them, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. In John chapter 17, right before Jesus, the night before that he is killed in his last 
time with his disciples in the midst of a prayer, he says this. He says, this is eternal life, that they should know God and his son whom he sent. Jesus says, eternal life begins now for those who put their faith in Christ. This unbreakable life begins now. This life, this eternal life that cannot be snuffed out by the death of our bodies. They will one day overcome the very death of our bodies and raise us up again. Begins now. And so this king who comes to the humble and not the proud, this king who comes in weakness, in crucifixion, in death rather than in strength, is the same king who comes and brings not death for us, but brings life, eternal life. It's when we wrestle with this question that we began with, can I trust him? Can I bend the knee to him? Jesus, by whose authority do you come? Can I really trust a king like you? We need to know that he is a king who brings this in his arms. A life that does not end. Who comes to us in our humility rather than our pride. Who comes and wields his life-giving weakness on our behalf. Rather than his strength. What happens if we grab hold of that? Well, we'll come to see what Jesus quotes in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 12. When he quotes Psalm 118. He speaks of those who have rejected the uh, authority of the king. And he says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. See what he's saying to the leaders of Israel, Though you may be rejecting me, He says, I am in fact the cornerstone, the first stone that gets laid, the one that sets the trajectory for the whole building. He says, God is doing something new and renewed in me. And what you have rejected is actually God's good and new work. And he was saying it in judgment. And that judgment plays out two different ways. Immediately, he was bringing the judgment against the leaders of the temple for having forsaken God. And you'll speak to this again in in Mark Judgments that were fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Rome marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, raised it, and it has never been rebuilt. Why? Because God was doing something new in Jesus, and he was bringing judgment on those who would turn from him. Secondly, it's also a hint that one day Christ, in fact, is returning. And as we've said, there is judgment for that, but we're not there yet. We're in the day of opportunity. And he says, when you come and let me in as your king like this, then I I become for you the cornerstone, the new foundation for your life, the one who now sets the trajectory for everything that you build in life. I become the thing that is most solid, most substantial. I become the thing that you can rest on and trust, foundation that cannot be blown away. Maybe that's what he had in mind in this one other section of the passage when he talks about taxes to Caesar. When they come and try to trap Jesus again, should we pay taxes or not? If he says yes, then all the people will say he's a collaborator with Rome. If he says no, then the Romans are going to look at him as an insurrectionist and a danger. Either way, they win. Instead, what does Jesus say? Whose face is on that coin? Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And render unto God what is God's. And maybe that's a good way to end as we talk about Jesus being our cornerstone. If he becomes the cornerstone, 
then what does it mean for us to say, okay, you are the foundation of my life, and now my calling is to render unto you whatever is yours. And what will that mean? And what will that include? Well, maybe that would be a good question to chew on this week. Let's pray.